Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. And this isn't necessarily something that one would celebrate, but nine years ago today was when Disney's Mars Needs Moms was released to theater, Drew, and you saw that, right? Yeah, I'm I'm actually still in therapy uh, for that right now, Jim. So <laughs> after this, after we finish recording, I'm going to go talk about um, the creepy Seth Green child and the monsters that wanted to abduct him and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I, and uh, you know, and, and I'm so it's a terrible you... movie, Jim. You can say it; it's a terrible movie. It 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 is. It is. But again, one of the reasons I particularly remember March 11, 2011, is that. We had set up a phoner with Simon Wells, the the director of Mars Needs Moms, and and obviously it's it's hardly going to be a tough phoner because the reviews were brutal, the box office projections were even worse. I mean, I want to say that the movie cost 150 million to make, and I think total during its North American release, this may actually be the worldwide number. It it only grossed like 39 million. So this is a guy who was having a very bad morning anyway, but. As we're doing the phoner, the, the Tohoku earthquake had happened in Japan, and you know we're all sitting in front of our television watching that live feed of the tsunami come rolling in. And, wow. And that was the thing. Simon was like, look, I'm having a bad day professionally, but that's nothing. This is nothing compared to what these poor people are dealing with here. You know, it's just sort of like, and I just made a, a bad movie. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, I will recover. You know, on the other hand, these people may not and you know it, it was an interesting day to do an interview and um and you're right i don't know if i've actually ever seen that again after seeing it in theaters it was it was tough uh, and it didn't zemeckis's image works thing go down like immediately after that or yeah well what's so interesting you saw the news today about peter jackson's beatles documentary coming yes right? yes you know and and you disney know, had been trying to make that animated yellow submarine movie which was the next image works digital oh, movie God. after mars needs moms you're right you're right which i've heard some amazing things about that yeah at, at the first d23 expo i remember the <laughs> the weirdly 3d image of the yellow submarines sort of looming out of the the slide when they were announcing the project oh god you're right yeah wow. carrie elways was going to be in it and doug chiang who has gone on to become you know like the lucasfilm designer did a yeah. bunch of work on it and i actually talked to him about it one time and he was like that was the one that was going to break through mm-hmm. that was the one that was going to shed this weird mm-hmm. you know baggage of the performance capture movies and really break through and it's such a shame we didn't get to see it because i actually really love the original but i think that it would be really cool to see an updated version oh no doubt no doubt I don't know if you remember, they got as far as casting Beatle lookalikes. There was a, you know, a, a I remember that. Wasn't it, there were Beatles memorabilia event, I want to say, in Stanford, Connecticut? And Yes, I was going to say, I remember when that happened in Connecticut, because I was living in Fairfield at the time. Oh, well, there we go. So that's so. right down the street. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. Uh, okay, folks, what are you going to do? Okay, we're going to keep going down the rabbit hole here. And speaking of rabbits... We just talked last week about uh, No Time to Die, uh, Bond 25 shifting its release date from April 10th to, well, here in the States, November 25th. 
And then we had a, a second film that's associated with Sony, Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway. Right. Pushed out its April 3rd release to August 7th, which... Isn't that I, crazy? Well, it's the ideal time to release an Easter <laughs> you know, friendly right. comedy. Uh, the weird thing is if you read the stories out there about it, that Sony felt like they didn't really have... They had no choice. You know, I guess uh, two-thirds of what P- the original Peter Rabbit made a few years back was was in international sales. Uh, have you seen it, the original movie, Jim? In, in, trying to think. I have, it's really good. You know, I have grazed it that when they'll do like an HBO weekend, it's like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, right. But, you know, I, I don't think I've sat through the whole thing. But it, really good? Or? Yeah, I would say. I mean, it's, it's not quite on Paddington's level, but it's the same kind of vibe that I think you would appreciate. Okay, well. um, Yeah. Under recommendation, I'll check this out next time it airs, but... You got a few months to catch up before the next one. (laughs) That that I do. But you know what's funny is that, you know, there's like billboards and stuff all around LA, Mm -hmm. so I wonder... Are they taking that stuff down? Are they just redoing it? Like, what what is the protocol there? I do not know. And, you know, the, the... the interesting thing, at least from my point of view, is that, okay, so here's Peter Rabbit. It blinks. It moves uh, you know, to, from April 3rd to August 7th. And yet we still have Trolls World Tour, which, remember, you've said is really good. Um, which I moved, did love it, yeah. You know, which moved up from April 17th to April 3rd, because who wouldn't love to have a a family-friendly, eagerly anticipated sequel on, you know, available on the Easter weekend. So, but they're not blinking yet. They're locked into that release date. So, we are definitely entering interesting space. Uh, yeah. In fact, it, there has been so much talk lately about, for example, you know, uh, basketball games where they're preventing people uh, from coming out, that games playing in eight empty stadiums. And it almost shocked me today when... I realized, well, oh, dang, today's the Disney shareholders meeting in, in Nashville, wasn't it? Or Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. some very interesting responses uh, on that during that uh, conference today. Well, yeah, but, but at the same time, there was one response that, honestly, I think you and I could have written, you know, weeks in advance. And Bob Iger, once again, get asked about Song of the South. Only, I guess what was a little different this time around is he was specifically asked about Song of the South showing up on Disney Plus, um, right? And I guess the, the hope was that you know when Dumbo went live on November twelfth on Disney Plus, uh, it included you know historical purposes disclaimer you know that this reflects the age the film was made that sort of thing. The tag is this program is presented as originally created. It may contain outdated cultural depictions. So it's like, okay, so if Dumbo can go forward like that with the crow singing when I see an elephant fly, uh, the thinking was, okay, so you know, we now have a glide path for Song of the South. And it's like, you know, and that's the thing. Uh, Iger flat out continues to say, uh, this particular movie is not appropriate for today's world and won't be re-released. But again, he's only there till 2021 and... Bob Chapek coming out of consumer products, uh, and particularly, I, I think you were talking about, you know, how he worked on the uh, the Walt Disney Studios home entertainment side for all those years. Yeah, I mean, if anybody going to know about the the pent out demand there is out there for Song of the South, it's it's Mr. Chapek. 
And I'm sure he, you know, he they've all tested the waters on whether or not this thing could ever be released. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm very I'm very interested in what will become of that. Well, anyway, all right, pivoting again from Disney Plus to future television projects. So, uh, you just pointed out what the, the AMC uh, thing, Pantheon. Yeah, well, what I think is so interesting about this is that it's an hour-long mm. animated drama, which I cannot remember any hour-long primetime animated series. Can you? Jeez, you know, uh, you know, I, I know of holiday specials. I know of that sort right, of thing. Right, right. But wow, yeah, an actual hour-long. And this is, this is a pretty sizable commitment. This is two eight-episode seasons. Um. Mm-hmm. Any word on who's going to be producing it? Or? Yeah, it's by... I don't know if you ever saw the uh, show Turn. I think it was subtitled Washington Spies. Mm-hmm. So that the guy that created that uh, and executive produced that, Greg Silverstein, is doing this one. So I, I don't know if he has any experience with animation, but it's it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm just... I'm really fascinated by the whole hour-long mm-hmm. uh, thing. You know, it's, it's about... It's based on a series of short stories by Ken Liu mm. about uploaded intelligence or human consciousness uploaded to the cloud. Hmm. We're getting into some heady territory here, Jim. Well, some real some real think pieces, you know what I mean? Okay. And conversely, over Warner Brothers animation, uh, we also have another series coming, Wings of Fire. All right. Anna DuVernay? That, that, yeah, you did it, Jim. There we go. Oh, 35th try, folks. Got the name right. <laughs> um, okay. She's, uh, what was the Disney thing last year with Oprah and Mindy Callum? Oh, uh, Wrinkle in Time. Yes, yes. Which, uh, <laughs> again, it turned out not to be another Black Panther. Go figure. Um, I, I, what? I never saw it, to be honest with you. Well, I sound like you, Jim, not, not watching <laughs> the movie, but it, it, it was wonderfully designed. It really was at a great look and, and an amazing cast. It just, you know, it was one of those things where it's just sort of like, it felt art directed with an inch of, of its life. You know, if you could have put the same level of care into the script that you did with the art direction. You know, mm-hmm. would have been great. Um, okay, but that's that's based on the Sutherland series of books. There are 15 novels, three graphic uh, novels, and, and four short stories. That They all tell a story of a warring land ruled by dragons. Ooh. And each book tells it from the point of view of a different dragon. So, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I can Hashtag st- too many dragons. <laughs> Hashtag. No, I was thinking more to the effect of going to be interesting at toy fair in a couple of years you know to, 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 right, to right. go to the warner's booth um all right so while we're talking about animated series just today word about mulligan drop yeah it's uh what do you what do you think about that well i mean again it's tina fey you gotta love uh, tina fey but but the, again the premise is a little bleak especially for something that's advertised as an animated comedy it's like that after an Alien attack destroys the earth. What remains of humanity has the chance to start society from scratch. But but can we get it right this time? And does anybody know how to like farm? Uh, <laughs> so uh, That's good. Come on, Jim. That's pretty good. I mean, no, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I get that there there's comic material there. But again, think about the meeting. They're, you know, a post-apocalyptic new animated comedy. 
Wow. Again, the action figures are just flying off the shelf there. <laughs> Listen, art imitates life, Jim. You know what I mean? Oh, please. We're staring down the barrel of that virus, so <laughs> you got to be prepared. Okay. Okay. I guess what intrigues me is to to have this announced right after the, the connected trailer drop. Again, but in that case, we're being overrun by robots rather than attacked by aliens. Uh, what did you think of the, the connected trailer? I loved it. I think we talked about it last time, but I wanted to bring up the fact that there's a different shot in the trailer than the one they released publicly mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Okay. Did you notice the differences? I did not. Uh, what, okay. what should I be so it's, for? A, it's the shot of the girl looking out over the city, mm-hmm. and there's a different uh, billboard to the left. Mm-hmm. In the one they released, it's a, it's a robot that says the future is now. Mm-hmm. But in the one from the trailer, it says Trek In, free Wi-Fi, color TV, continental breakfast. Um, so I'm wondering what what the significance is of that uh, difference and how it will play out in the movie. I'm just, listen, Jim, this is by some of the creators of Gravity Falls. You know we got to be looking at every oh, detail. I, I, I know, I know. I, I, you know? I, I, the problem is I'm, of course, leading you the other direction that... There probably is some company that actually has that that particular slogan that you know, and it's their intellectual property, and you know, right. for, the, for their really for real product, and the fact that you're making fun of it in your movie. But but again, I, I still I love that trailer. I, I love the look of the thing. Uh, you know, just in fact, I think yes, you and I were talking about how it seems to be pushing the CG two D graphic uh, look of Into the Spider Verse yet again, and and coupled by with what looks to be sharp writing. So, but that's September 18th. Yeah. That trailer played really well. Mm-hmm. I went and saw onward in, in the theater on Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I saw that and I saw the Simpsons short uh, that played before it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really interesting. Um, it actually starts with a kind of silhouette of Mickey. And then it turns out that it's Homer uh, with two donuts over his head and he eats the donuts. And so, uh, and the, and then the card says Disney welcomes the Simpsons to the family. <laughs> Which I thought was very interesting. And then the short is fine. It's you know mm-hmm. it's kind of like Maggie falls in love with another baby on the playground and mm-hmm. yada yada yada. Mostly silent, so it kind of keeps in with the uh, you know the Pixar short film kind of mo. But at mm-hmm. the end of the movie, what was interesting was the Gracie's Films logo, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, a silhouette of a, an audience watching a movie screen. Mm-hmm. There's Mickey is in the audience as well. Oh, jeez. So. Okay. And it's all I, happening, I, Jim. Well, I, which brings me to my next question. How many trailers? I mean, typically we get eight up here. Uh, and more specific. We didn't see a Bob's Burgers trailer, did we? No. No Bob's mm. Burgers trailer and the old Soul trailer, which I don't know if you saw the new poster today. No. Uh, for Soul. Um, oh. It's not great. It's not great. I will say okay. that. Pixar posters aren't the best, but this one is pretty not good. But anyway. Okay. I, yeah. well, you know, again, I, I'm i a huge fan of Bob's Burgers. I want to see this movie. And let's be honest, I do have you know, a way to sort of satiate myself till then, and that that's Central Park, uh, which is, what, uh, by the co-creator Bob's Burgers. Yeah. Uh, and now that's drops this May on, is that Amazon? Uh, it's Apple, I believe. Apple. Apple. Yeah. Okay. But the trailer just dropped, and 
that made me want to see this even more. I mean, look, you know, last week we were talking about the Beauty and the Beast prequel, where we, we get even the story of how Gaston and LaFou met. Again, eight episodes? That's, that's how many we're getting, supposedly? I mean, things are very mm. in flux, I think, but yeah. Okay, all right. But on the other hand, Josh Gad is is all over the Central Park trailer, and they advertise this. It's an all-new animated musical comedy series. Yeah. And just from the, the, the Central Park theme song, or the anthem for the show, uh, you know, how can you not automatically love a show that features this lyric? Where else can your son and daughter splash in dirty hot dog water? Uh, just, yeah, it's true. That's true. You know, um, and I don't know. But the cast, I mean, Stanley Tucci as what the diminutive New York real estate magnate who's trying to buy up Central Park. Right. Uh, who carries a dog around in a sort of a baby uh, Bjorn. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's already got a lot of great stuff. I'm mean, right. very, very much looking forward to to this hitting. But yeah, that that's not till May. You were, were just talking about Onward and I guess... <sighs> can we talk a little bit about how it did over its opening weekend? Yeah, let's or? do it. Okay. So, all right. Well, what was it? It was, I guess when the, the hard numbers finally came in, it was 40.4. That sound right? Uh, for North America and then like 28 million overseas. But at the same time, you know, when the theaters in Italy actually literally close on on Sunday and the fact that in throughout the entire weekend, you know, just hammering away, hammering away about you don't want to go anywhere there where there were crowds. And normally that's a Pixar movie, you know, they're particularly on opening weekend. So um, I honestly feel bad that it, it did the numbers that it did. But if you were pointing out that if we're being completely honest here, it's not the lowest grossing Pixar film of all time, at least over opening weekend. And what film would that be, Drew? Well, I am working under the, let's say, well-held belief that mm. John Carter is actually a Pixar movie. And it really is a live-action well, Pixar movie. It will, you're not wrong. I mean, you know, the first table read for the film was held up at Emeryville, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know... All... I even have quotes from Ed Catmull in mm -hmm. 2008 when mm -hmm. he basically says, like, we've got two projects coming and there's a live action element. But mm -hmm. our view is not that we're trying to diversify. It's more that we've got a creative vision to try something different and mm -hmm. we want to support that vision. Mm -hmm. But that, and I quote, we won't want to turn Pixar into a live action studio. Mm -hmm. The movies he was talking about were John Carter in 1906 at the mm -hmm. time. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting that he describes John Carter as a movie with live action elements. Mm-hmm. Which is true. I mean, there's a lot of animation in that movie. I don't know. Totally, totally, totally. You know, one might argue, if you look at something like Avengers Endgame, there's so much animation in a film like that. There's the equivalent of a, a full-length animated feature. In oh, addition, for sure. You know, supplementing, you know, the, the, the live action. But um, I, I don't know. I just, I remember talking with folks at Pixar and Disney and how they had envisioned that John Carter would be... They're 20,000 leagues, you know, the notion of, you know, let's do a big, 
sex-filled fantasy film, you know, and, it, and, and expand the Pixar wheelhouse. And the story that I've always heard was that as the dailies came in, and in fact, it was this interesting story about how the Spielbergs of the world, the guys who have been doing this for a long time, know that you want to front load your schedule, your shoot, with stuff you can use for the trailer, stuff that you can you know cut together that looks great, that'll help sell the movie. And I guess Andrew went the other way because he wasn't necessarily, you know, this was his first time directing live action. So he right. wanted to get his feet under him. And so he did a lot of smaller dialogue scenes and saved the bigger stuff for later. And then it was like, it's time to put together the trailer to sell this movie. And it's like, what have we got? Well, people standing around talking, you know, and it's like, what? In the end, I guess it was Lasseter who was so protective of Pixar's reputation is that Pixar makes nothing but hits and was just looking at the footage and had then had the painful conversation with Andrew, you know, to the effect of, we're going to move this over to Disney. You know, right. I mean, it's, and that's what happened. So, yeah, um, he said that but, he was loaned out to Disney. <laughs> well, so. there you go. <laughs> As opposed to prodded. You know, right, right. <laughs> go, go stand over there with them. <laughs> right. Uh, tell you what, folks, when we get back from break here, we're going to talk a little bit more about Onward, but from the point of view of Drew's terrific new book, The Art of Onward. Okay, so we're back. I was telling Drew off air, I mean, I, I just yesterday got my copy of The Art of Onward. As I explained from the last show, uh, it's not physically available out here in New England, like, you know, or, or for most of the continental United States. And last I heard, there there are copies available in Oregon. So my daughter was nice enough to order me a copy of The Art of Onward from Amazon, had did the two-day delivery. It showed up yesterday, and so I've been pouring over it since it got here. And Drew, I, no lie, this is my favorite making of Pixar film book since Chronicle published its Monsters, Inc. book back in 2001. What I love about what you've done here is that this is one of those books that really pops the hood, that it's not talking about the finished film. It's talking about a lot of the choices that were made, sequences and characters that get dropped. In fact, there's a chart in here I wish that they would include with every making a book. It starts off with the original treatment, which I guess Dan Scanlon delivered back in April of 2015. And then it just marches through going with the table reader of the fully developed first draft of the script in October of 2015. And and then uh, it marches through all of the work in progress screenings, which do you remember? I, I think it was the Big Hero 6 uh, long lead day. Where, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Where Paul Briggs told this great story about how tough work in progress screenings are because you spend three months, four months boarding a film and you, you get it all up on reels. And then you go into a screening room and everyone watches the movie that you're going to try to make. And then afterwards, there's this meeting where everybody picks the film you've been working on for three or four months apart. And he, he told, you know, this wonderful analogy of, it's like you have three or four months to build a car. And then you go to this meeting where people effectively dismantle your car 
and spread it all over the driveway. It's like, well, we don't like the steering wheel and the wheels are too fat. And why did you pick this upholstery? And it's like, okay, try again. Right. You know, and you have to keep rebuilding your car. And every three and four months, they come back and you know, they dismantle your car. And, you know, sometimes they never actually let you put your car into manufacture. I mean, what was the newt? Was that the Pixar thing about the blue-footed newts? Or yes. That never made it out of the gate. Never made um, it out. No. There are others, Jim, but there have been. But that was the only one that was announced and uh, can't you know canceled. Yeah. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it in 2017 at the D23 Expo? Dan finally stood on stage and you know they actually put up a slide to the effect of the. The unnamed Pixar film that's about suburban fantasy or something. Yeah, to yeah, that it, uh, un- untitled Pixar film set in hmm. a suburban fantasy world. There you go. Yes. All right, you were there, right? So, yeah, yeah. But, but by then they had only done three work in progress screenings. There would be an additional five before you know. Finally, in fact, I guess when did you get invited to work on the book? When, when it was, was about that? this time last year. So. Wow. What was so interesting was that even, you know, I went into my my interviews uh, with the creative principles that are throughout the book, and even they were like, you know, it's changed since the version you saw yesterday. Jeez. Okay. And so this was this but, was always being worked on. First and foremost, let, let's talk about the original working title of the movie, Trio. Yeah. Uh, and, and why was it called Trio? Well, there was a third character, Jim, on, mm-hmm. out on this quest with the brothers. I mean, I think Trio still works if you include the brothers and the dad. But I get that. I do. Yeah, there was a little character called Jenny who went with mm-hmm. them. Um, yeah. Who, and she was she like a was centaur a, or something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what fascinates me is that, you know, especially when a film is making its way through the various work in progress uh, things, how fluid characters are. Like Jenny started out as a wizard, uh, eventually became a, a warrior character, and then became someone who was really cynical about magic, and only to then by the, the third work in progress screen to, to basically be cut from the entire film. But again, in, in a lot of the concept art, if you're looking closely, like for example, there's a, that wonderful image in there of the different iteration of the magic bridge where instead of being out in the country, it's, it's next to a, a bridge with heavy traffic. Um, right. But if you, you and look that's, closely. Is that the one with the sign that says like new bridge coming soon or something? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But if you look closely at that image, that's Ian, Barley, Jenny, and then Tail and Charlie is, is dad from the waist down. Right. And even then, you know, just, you know, the way the dad you know, that they kept trying to get a handle on the dad, that he went from being a wizard to a master wizard to a secret wizard. And then the the wizard thing kind of became secondary to the notion that he's a confident father or is he a bold father? Right. And and, and that's the thing, that there there's so much about the way this book is put together, how they talked about, for example, they tried versions of Onward, which didn't have the prologue, which was set in sort of the golden age of magic. Right. But, you know, in the end, I think it's Corey where he talked about that, you know, they realized the audience needed to see, you know, what that world was like so that when we got to the world of new mushroom ton, 
you know, we understood that this is what it became. You know, but the, once upon a time, magic was everywhere. And magic was amazing. And even then, though, the the I, I love the stuff you have in the book about them trying to find that sweet spot with new mushroom tongue. There had to be that that line between fantasy and familiar. Yes, correct. Uh, and so, if you had a mushroom, you had to put a satellite dish on it, or you know, mm-hmm. put a fence around it, or some you know, you know, everything that was magical had to be brought down to earth. Mm-hmm. Um, in some way. And there were some interesting ideas that incorporated that philosophy that didn't make it in that I know you mm-hmm. were a fo- you were thrilled to see in the book. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> and, and in fact, some of the stuff that fell off the table, it just sounds, I mean, at least conceptually so wonderful that, like, for example, the sirens. Mm-hmm. I understand why the sirens didn't make it, but there's some other stuff that I miss. But yeah, the, the sirens were like calling them into this abandoned building trying to sell them timeshares <laughs> and then the building would sink into the swamp <laughs> the swamp then, of regret yes yes, yes. Yeah. okay but then it was like you know, you know they, they talk about it in the book where it's like wait are they killing people like what is <laughs> what is their mo here you know it was just a little too dark but uh, uh yeah no i get that i get that but at the same time the way that, you know, for example, the quest changed over the course of the film. I guess for the table read or, you know, the original treatment, it's they had to get to Dragon Island for, where the Museum of Historical Fantasy was located. And then by the time we get to the table read, it's Ian and, and Barley are trying to get to a dragon's lair at the top of a mountain. And But by the time we get to our first uh, work-in-progress screenings, that's now changed to a phoenix lair at the top of the mountain because instead of needing a phoenix gem, they wanted to get a phoenix feather. Does that sound right? Or um... yeah, well, and the phoenix was like the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He had like he had purposefully weeded out magic from the world. Well, yeah, which he is was very weird. He was you know, very he was like much into technology, right? Or yeah, and, and they couldn't quite figure out why he wanted technology to win mm-hmm. and. I think the movie works better when it's just when it's simpler and it's just more about the emotion oh, and the heart of the movie. No know? doubt, no doubt. In fact, that's what's fascinating when when they began cutting and refining. I mean, for example, when they dropped Jenny. Really, this is a story about the boys and their quest with the dad. But on the other hand, there, there's some some wonderful, fun ideas that kind of went by the wayside. Like, for example, at the end, the monster. The, the way the curse works is that. Well, first of all, I guess for a time they were toying with the idea of doing a really for real dragon, you know, battle with a real dragon at the end of the movie. And But I guess both Dan and Corey felt that was too on the nose, you know, especially this is a, more about a fantasy world that's become normal. And so, you know, not to spoil the, the actual end of the movie for those who haven't seen it yet, but there was a wonderful moment or iteration. I, I think this was only for the, the fifth work in progress screening where it was the DMV, you know, which again, if you if you're a teenager, that's a very intimidating, very scary place because they decide whether or not you get a driver's license. But the the physical building that the DMV was in became the monster. There's this great piece of art where it's got like radio antennas, you know, jutting out of its shoulder. But yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit about? Working around this art, because, you know, face it, I remember when you were talking about working on the book, it was more about creating 
captions, you know, and trying to sort of glue all of this stuff together. Now, now who? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was, you know, I had the layout of the book, so I went into the interviews with that layout mm-hmm. and and then it's kind of like followed up if I needed some some additional mm-hmm. comments or something. But most of my work was focused on the actual chapters that start each mm-hmm. you know each section of the book and those are devoted to d- either like a different location or a different a different part of their quest let's mm-hmm. say the book kind of follows their quest mm-hmm. you know and it was just fun talking about stuff that didn't make it in the movie and that i you know if i hadn't seen the art i would never have known about like the minotaur's maze that they were going to encounter towards the end of the movie but again which but, but, is probably my favorite thing that didn't get into the movie but, but tell them frankly. where the minotaur maze was located it was in a shopping mall. <laughs> and so there were people that were like wandering around for like thousands of years in this shopping mall, which I thought was the funniest idea. Well, and they, and they had, is there is the piece of art still in the book with the escalators that look like that's like an Escher? That's painting? exactly that. that that's okay. I, I was hoping you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you get how it could have been an amazing scene, but at the same time, from a story point of view, really, they've been trapped in there for, for thousands of years and. You know, yeah, Dan couldn't figure it out. Mm. I think Kelsey talks about it too. That they just could not figure out, like, were they immortal? Like, what, what was, what were the rules of this mall? You know, so many of the ideas are just so funny, but it's not enough to be oh, funny know, in a Pixar I know, movie. But, but, you know. but, but again, it's just when you look at things like all of the different designs of the talking trees and how. Oh, Jim, uh, those trees break my heart. Oh, I, I especially love the one that what what is the greeter at Tech Mart? <laughs> you know, I mean, it just right. You know, it's again, it just a, a funny idea, a, a genuinely funny yeah. idea. Uh, but you know, they talk about like they were they alive? <laughs> were they? You know, it's <laughs> like what what are these trees? But that was. That image was the big the image they showed at D twenty three in twenty seventeen. I don't know if you right. remember that, That's but it was right. the tree right. in the oh. in the parking lot. Yeah. yeah, and then there was the different take on the dad, where it, rather than you know literally he's just exists from the pants down. That there was the iteration where he started off as a pair of shoes, and then was shoes and pants, and then got torso and and arms, and and I think Corey's the one who talks about it. That gave. You know the story, a certain narrative oof, but it took away a lot of the comedy and and yeah. But yeah, I I love the nuts and bolts take on this book. I I love, for example, how you know you you included the chunk about face it, both Ian and Barley are blue skinned, but you know the problem is again we tend to think of mm-hmm. you know somebody with blue skin is uh, cold or you know ghoulish or that sort yep. of thing. So th- they they literally designed you know subsurface scattering. So you mm-hmm. got like. So you could tell there was blood underneath there. That's that's it exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a big thing we talked about. I talked about, you know, with, with Sharon, too, mm-hmm. who I interviewed for the book, who's the director of photography. Mm-hmm. And she has a lot of amazing things to say, too, just about how the land becomes, you know, you can emphasize the fantasy more through lighting, mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, it's really, it's, it's, an, it's a fascinating process. And... For me, knowing how the sausage was made doesn't make it any less enchanting, but actually adds to my enjoyment. Oh no, no, of the no! Film. And, and and that's what it's so much of what I enjoy about Art of Onward. In fact, I love the throwaway about you know the whole notion of well, can we put an English two door next to a fast food place? And and you know, somebody pointed out, have you been to L.A.? Yeah, <laughs> that was really interesting. That they you know they were like, we have to you know find this. Fantasy land, and then it was like, wait a minute, 
this is just L.A. Like, this is, you know. No, yeah, that, yeah. There's a strip I, I, mall I, I, on every corner. There's, you know, the vines growing out of, you know, the earth and the, the colors are the same. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really interesting. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, I love that you revealed that Blazy is actually Dan's tribute to his bug-eyed dog, Carol. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I follow Carol on Twitter, Jim. I think you should, too. I mean, she's no Nova, but, you know, <laughs> well, there, very cute. There you go. There you go. Um, what I love about this book is that the, the way you clearly lay out all of the different choices and, and, you know, all of the different things that were tried, the fact that they talk about how the end of the film, and again, not going to ruin for folks who haven't seen it yet, that was there from the very first work in progress screening in October 2016. And yeah. that never changed, you know, because it was so powerful. It obviously worked, you know. Yeah, I mean, they've since then, they've told me that that was the reason that they think the movie was greenlit in the first place. Was really? that, that ending was so good. Mm-hmm. And even if they kind of wavered in development, it was so good. And they knew they were going to hit that moment so hard. Mm. That they said, go for it. Keep going. Keep going. We got, we got, I mean, they were all going towards that ending. It's really fascinating that that was like, you know, the kind of stake in the ground that the rest of the movie kind of was built up around. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's always interesting because they had their dismount. They knew how they were going to end it. But it was then, again, getting that balance between comedy and drama and, and actually earning that ending. And, you know, the choices they had to make, like, you know, how, for example, Laurel, there's this whole iterations of this movie where she's trying to stop her boys from going on this quest. And then they realized she's a mom. She would want her sons to know their dad. She would want to help them. And and in fact, once they they locked on that story point, Laurel finally worked as a character. Um, yeah. She's a highlight. Yeah, it's yeah. it's an interesting it's an interesting journey. The journey mm. of making the movie is just as perilous as the journey in the movie. And the beauty of Drew's books is he takes you all the way through that journey. It got beautiful concept art, but it, it's also a great read and and filled with with wonderful stories. I mean, I love how when the animators were trying to get a hand on how the dad worked that they actually built a dad dummy out of what, you know, pillows and sweaters and gloves. Yeah, I saw it. At, <laughs> sorry. I mean, it looks, it looks pretty good. I got it. Oh, yeah. So, it's just yeah, chilling well, on a chair, you know, so. Okay. Seriously, folks, this isn't needless shilling. I'm, I'm serious. This, this has been my favorite Pixar making a book since the Monsters, Inc. book. And, and again, that's, that's a lot of well worth picking up because that's the one that they make no bones about the fact that they didn't know what their story was either. They knew they wanted to set something in the monster world. And there was that whole version of the film where it was, you know, people sat at home watching. It was entertainment. You know, they literally filmed monsters going into kids' bedrooms and scaring them. And, you know, the show that had the biggest scares got the biggest ratings. And, uh, and then there was the, the version where Boo was actually like a 10-year-old girl, but she spoke Gaelic, so they, she couldn't <laughs> communicate with Sully, who at that point, uh, that was the John Cusack version. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love books like this that you get to realize that the film is the finished product, but the journey that got you there to this this finished product is sometimes just as entertaining as the movie itself. So, again... If you happen to be in Oregon, go to that bookstore and, <laughs> and buy yourself a Or copy. just order it on Amazon, Jim. Or, or just, just order it on Amazon. Yeah. So 
In the meantime, though, it must have intrigued you to see the news that dropped yesterday. I mean, after you know, Mission Impossible pulled out of Venice for its shoot, we had Falcon and the Winter Soldier pull out of Prague. Yeah. Uh, you know, so has has the one dropped yet about the the costume designer? When does that go up? No, that's in a little while. Uh, <sighs> this week, I think we're finishing up our John Knoll series, and then we're starting in on uh, Marianne and Mary Jo, who were the editors of Three. And mm-hmm. Marianne just got finished editing a little movie called Rise of Skywalker, and we actually get some pretty good juice out of her. So get ready for those, Jim. <laughs> okay. Oh, cannot wait. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I will. I will let Dan Z know about that. Yes, yeah. Perhaps we will we'll do a little cross-pollinating over looking at Lucasfilm. Yeah, I would love that. Uh, okay. As for the other podcasts, uh, we do here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. Got Dan Dish with Lentesta. We got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We got Marvel Us Disney, which we do in Aaron Adams. And I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. Drew and I a favor. If you could head on over to iTunes and rate and recommend both Light the Fuse and Fine Tuning. That helps get us extra ears and eyeballs. And if you really, really, really like what you hear here, if you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be helpful. And, okay. Um, I want somebody to decode these images from Connected, too, Jim. That's what I, somebody, yes, yes. one of our listeners needs to, somebody to tell knows us something. what's going on. Yeah. Okay. And I know, well, obviously we just discovered that Carol Dan Scanlon's dog is... Twitter or yeah, I think is... she's on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. okay. I guess Carol that, but the dog. Not, but Nova also has a, a, yes. a social, social media presence. Yeah, she's uh, on Instagram. I know that. I know that Nancy's a big fan. Oh, who could not be a fan of Nova? All right, but so you, you, you yourself, you know, have social media presence. Where's that at? Or yeah, Drew Tailored T A L O R E D, like the suit, like tailored suit. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's where I'm at. Okay, and let's see. As for Jim Hill Media, we can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, over at Facebook, we're Jim Hill Media News for some reason. And speaking of it, Drew and I will be back with some brand new animation-related news in a week's time. But till then, thanks for listening, and go get a copy of The Art of Onward. Ah, oh, thanks, Jim.